0: We began with local recall election that's getting so much national attention, the effort to unseat San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin. This is Proposition H. Yes on H means recalling the DA.
1: No on H, keep him in office. And tonight, you can see the result is resounding. Boudin is out. In June this year, the San Francisco DA, Chesa Boudin, was removed after a recall election.
2: His opponents pointed to rising crime in San Francisco and argued that his approach as a prosecutor was making the city unsafe.
1: In a piece in The Atlantic celebrating the recall, the writer Nellie Bowles said crime was so bad that, quote, one time someone smashed our windows just to steal a scarf.
2: A former venture capitalist named Michelle Tandler claimed dogs in the city were becoming addicted to meth-laced poop.
1: Five months since the recall, we wanted to take a closer look At what really happened, now that a new DA is in place, has crime in San Francisco gone down?
2: And we'll be talking about some of his most vocal opponents, including a Silicon Valley mogul, and why they wanted him out. I'm Alex Perrine.
1: And I'm Laura Marsh.
2: This is The Politics of Everything.
1: The recall of Chesa Boudin, who served as San Francisco DA for two and a half years, was usually explained like this. Crime was soaring in San Francisco, Boudin wasn't doing enough to fight it. The recall hinged on the idea that San Francisco was in meltdown and the DA had lost control. But the statistics about crime during that period might tell a different story. We're talking now with Peter Calloway. He's a public defender and he lives in the Tenderloin, a part of San Francisco that's been the focus of fears of crime. He wrote at the time of the recall that almost everything you read about this subject is wrong. Peter, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me. I'm a fan of the show and it's nice to be here. Thank you.
1: Good. There was a lot of talk in the lead up to the recall about how crime rates were going up in San Francisco. What kinds of statistics were Boudin's opponents throwing around?
3: They weren't so much throwing around statistics as they were just making unsupported claims. There was a, a general theme that San Francisco had sort of entered a period of lawlessness The police were no longer arresting people because they knew Boudin would not file charges.
1: So the idea is that people were committing crimes and he wasn't prosecuting them. And were they saying he was doing this with violent crimes or are we talking about kind of petty shoplifting? What kind of stories were they invoking?
3: You saw it in both sort of spheres. There's a sort of a version of this claim that was more general and didn't really get into the specifics. And there's a version that pointed to theft. And I think another version that pointed to, for example, an increase in attacks against the AAPI community, Mm -hmm. anti-Asian violence generally, and sort of suggested that crime was rising and Boudin was failing to prosecute it. And both those claims are, are demonstrably false. As you say, a lot of the claims that were made were
2: anecdotal or based on sort of sensational viral videos, more on vibe than fact. But you did single out a Washington Post story that claimed murder and rape were up by double digit percentages in San Francisco. Can you tell us about that story and and what
3: their numbers said? So what the reporter wrote was that crime in the tenderloin, which by all accounts is sort of the epicenter of the drug and homelessness crises in San Francisco, had in some categories increased double digit percentages, right? And the use of that phrase seems obviously kind of intended to invoke a crime wave. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that was the the sort of trigger for me that caused me to just sort of after work one night, dig into the SFPD data. And I am not really a spreadsheet guy. I actually had to get a little help from an intern about setting up some of the formulas. (laughs) I looked at crime in every single category and then did year over year changes from 2019 to 2020, 2020 to 2021, and then the two year change from 2019 to 2021. And so what I found was that this double digit percentage increase in homicides, for example, that he wrote about was an increase in the number of homicides from 10 to 11. He's right, it's 10%, Mm -hmm. but it's dramatically misleading. Pointing out this misleading use is, of course, not to minimize the harms represented by even those single-digit increases, right? I mean, my grandfather was murdered when my father was 15 years old, and that changed the trajectory of his life and that of his siblings and family. I've seen that up close.
2: It's not to minimize the seriousness of crime to make the point that you can frame a single-digit increase in incidents as a double-digit increase in percentages, And how you choose to frame that makes a big difference when you're telling the story of what San Francisco is like. Exactly right. And if you're using crime stats to tell a story, it seems important to me that no one's really making a compelling causal argument that the actions of a prosecutor, what they choose to charge, actually have a causal effect in the amount of violence in a community.
3: It's interesting to hear you kind of characterize it that way. There's a study done in the last year or so, and I think it's preliminary and hasn't yet been peer reviewed, but showed no connection whatsoever between the policies of a progressive prosecutor. And this looked at DAs across the country and the incidence of the sorts of crimes that we think of as the, within the purview of a prosecutor or a police officer.
1: So we've talked about the kind of caricature of Chase Boudin's approach to his work as the DA. Can you just describe for us what he was actually trying to do and what kinds of policies he was pursuing?
3: He understood the root causes of crime and the ineffectiveness of these status quo responses and created different responses, though he charged at basically the same rate. He charged, in fact, I think he had a higher charging rate for sexual assault, for rape specifically, than any D.A. in that office since 2011 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and his charging rates for other crimes, thefts and things of this sort were either equal to just below or just higher than the uh, D.A. who came before him.
1: And tell us about his record of going to white collar crime.
3: Another piece, I think, is a focus on economic crimes, right, and a focus on sort of workers' rights Mm -hmm. and the sorts of things that push people in San Francisco onto the streets and cause them to become my clients, right? Mm -hmm. And so there I'm referring to, for example, his lawsuits against DoorDash for misclassifying its workers as contract. He did the same thing with a company called Handy.
1: And how widespread is that kind of crime? How many victims are we talking about?
3: This is sort of a stunning statistic, but wage theft in the United States, the dollar value is about $50 billion annually, which is far more than all of the other types of theft, larceny, burglary, robbery combined.
1: Right. And yet in the last couple of years, whenever you've read something in a major newspaper lamenting the state of San Francisco, it isn't people walking the streets and saying, oh, so many people must be having their wages stolen from them by employers. They're talking about this perception of crime happening on the street. And they're not interested in the crimes that they can't see or that don't directly affect them.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. I think also the media bears some responsibility for the crimes that are most front of mind. You could find somebody who's been displaced, is on the streets of San Francisco, who had been victim of an economic crime by a tech corporation Mm -hmm. and help people understand that story a bit more. One sort of other kind of core feature of Boudin as prosecutor that I think is really important is his insistence on holding police accountable for the harms that they create, right? Between that and the focus on economic crimes, I think the reaction to his tenure is somewhat unsurprising given the way that we've seen those same interests react to challenges to their power and to their privilege throughout the course of history.
1: So you live in San Francisco and you also work as a public defender. The portrayal of San Francisco as a place that is full of crime. I mean, how does that square with your day-to-day experience of living and working there?
3: I mean, there's no denying the existence of some of these problems, right? And, and I live, again, in the Tenderloin, which is sort of the epicenter Of the homelessness and drug crises, Mm -hmm. I see people suffering daily. My experience of San Francisco is that despite these conditions in some areas, statistically it's among the safest major cities in the United States. Our homicide rate is the lowest among I think like the top eight or nine cities of its size.
1: So what you have is a prosecutor who is tough on crime. He's tough on corporations, he's tough on police who commit crime, but he is portrayed as being soft on crime because a lot of his opponents didn't want those kinds of crimes investigated.
3: Yeah, I mean, when people say tough on crime, they mean this very specific thing, and it's not the thing that they claim to me. Peter, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
1: The recall campaign was successful in that it got Boudin removed. But its stated goal was to lower crime in San Francisco, and that part is a different story.
2: After the break, we'll talk about what happened after Boudin was ousted. So his detractors may have called him soft on crime, but Chesa Boudin charged at similar rates as his predecessors. He had a different idea about which kinds of crime matter most. He went after companies and he went after the police. But after he was recalled, the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, appointed Brooke Jenkins to replace Boudin as district attorney. Jenkins was a quote-unquote tough-on-crime selection. We're talking now with California journalist and former political advisor Gil Duran about what happened next. Gil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What was Brooke Jenkins' background exactly, and what kind of promises was she making?
4: Well, Brooke Jenkins was an assistant district attorney working for Chase Abudin in the DA's office and quit in a very dramatic fashion last October to become his chief critic in the recall campaign. When she quit, she quit because she said that he had mishandled a murder case that she had been working on. What the actual reality was, was that they did get a conviction, but the person who did the murder was obviously very mentally ill, and so the jury found for insanity. And Jenkins wanted to fight the insanity plea, even though the guy is probably going to spend the rest of his life in a locked mental hospital. Mm -hmm. And so she leaves with that rationale, becomes his chief critic, and uh, throughout the campaign, Pretty much asserts that the crime and the disorder and the lack of safety that some people feel was a direct result of Boudin's politics and his tone or vibe. And lo and behold, uh, she ends up becoming, after the recall succeeds, his successor. Now, multiple sources told me that other candidates had turned down the position, but the mayor's office swears that she was the first choice. In any case, she is now in the hot seat as San Francisco's interim DA. I guess just to get to the pretty obvious question, she has now been the DA for a little while,
2: the interim DA. Is everything that she was complaining about, what kind of progress has she made? Are things better in San Francisco? Has the crime wave receded? Has the chaos ended?
4: (laughs) In short, no. The disorder, the open-air drug dealing that largely drove the Boudin recall, have continued unabated. We've seen property crimes, drug crimes, and even murders continue to take place, surprise, surprise, in a big urban city with a lot of inequality, a lot of poverty, and a lot of problems. Mm. So what has she done? What's her record been so far? Well, mostly it's consisted of very bold declarations of harsh new policies. She says she's going to prosecute more juveniles as adults. She's restarting the drug war, promising to arrest and jail both drug users and drug dealers, which is probably not going to be too successful because the jail is at capacity because it's completely understaffed. She's also making it unclear as to whether she's going to prosecute police officers who are accused of abuse. She's got to keep the police union in her corner. They were the chief antagonist to her predecessor. So what we've seen is a lot of big promises that she's going to somehow reverse or kind of banished from existence crime, using a return to policies that actually did not work for decades. When California had a 30 to 40 year tough on crime period, starting in the 1970s with Jerry Brown, my former boss for whom I worked both in the city of Oakland when he was mayor and in the governor's office. You know, when you get to the end of the tough-on-crime rainbow, you find that reform is necessary because prisons and jails are creating more crime. She seems to be recreating what we already did in the 70s, 80s, and 90s and promising it'll be different this time, at a time when we're actually at a period where crime is much, much lower now than it was in the 80s, under Mayor Feinstein, who everybody regards as a great mayor who is certainly not soft on crime, Mm -hmm. or under D.A. Kamala Harris or Mayor Gavin Newsom, who are regarded as very effective politicians but if you look at their crime rates they would have done anything to have crime be as low as it was during the time that Chase Aboudin was in office. Yeah,
2: I mean there from my perspective there's something similar in the in the politics here in New York where you know the Republicans will run on a return to tough on crime and then you go back to the Giuliani era or the Governor Pataki era, and the crime rates then were astronomically higher than they are now. You know, we went over the statistics already, and it seems like the, the statistics almost matter less for a lot of people than a sort of general atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It seems really hard for the data to to make a difference in how people perceive what's going on in a place like San Francisco.
4: Yeah, this was really a case of mass hysteria, as far as I could tell. And it was really, it felt sometimes like being in an experiment, where we are seeing whether this sense of panic can drive Democratic voters to behave almost as Republicans and to disregard the facts and the statistics for a general feeling that things were unsafe, no matter what the facts said. And I think a big mistake that people like Brooke Jenkins are making is they're really accepting this Republican frame that prisons and incarceration and harsh penalties solve crime. There is no evidence of that happening in the United States. It didn't work in California when we tried it for 35 years. And so it's not clear where San Francisco thinks it's going Mm. by repeating the broken policies of the past when during the era of reform we've experienced some of the overall lowest crime rates in recent history.
1: We want to talk about some of what's driving those perceptions of rising crime regardless. You wrote this great piece for the San Francisco Examiner titled Cocaine Buffets and Meth Poop, Meet Twitter's Rising Anti-San Francisco Influences." Can you talk us through some of the ways this kind of information is spreading?
4: Sure. Well, I think there's a concerted effort to push this narrative, both in terms of public people, the police unions, Republicans, there are a few here in San Francisco, pushing the crime narrative, blaming Boudin, but you also had a lot of sock puppet accounts, Mm. some bots and troll networks that were identified, all pushing this idea of crime, and added to that, you have television news, which is a parasite that feeds on crime and disorder Mm -hmm. and pushes it to people every day as if it's the only thing happening in town. And so I think all of these things together conspired with millions of dollars in money from Republican-leaning billionaires who put all of this kind of angst and fear behind a campaign to scapegoat Boudin for all of the problems in our town. So you really saw this kind of convergence of different factions into a focused effort on of Boudin. I
2: wanted to get to some of the goofier examples of that, though, because I, I think that the—was it fentanyl in the dog poop or was it was it meth? What was in the dog it poop? It was
4: meth in the fentanyl, and the dogs were allegedly—this <laughs> was false—getting addicted to the eating the poop Were hunting out the meth poop. Hunting out the meth in, poop, right. In parks, and everyone was doing it. But anything like that, you can just make up, and it becomes sticky. So it seems sort of obvious why the right,
2: and we're going to get into the billionaire aspect a little bit more with our next guest but it seems obvious why the right would target a so-called progressive prosecutor. San Francisco and California are very Democratic places. Is it the case that Democrats, the Democratic Party, prominent Democratic elected officials, were they behind Boudin? How did the party react to this recall campaign?
4: Well, the thing about Boudin that also helped with his demise is he's a bit of an outsider here. Mm -hmm. You know, he beat a a progressive Democrat who was part of what you call the city family. He also has this radical background that was easy to take shots at. His parents were in the weather underground. He worked for Hugo Chavez down in Venezuela as as a translator. So it was very easy to make him into this sort of leftist monster who was destroying the town. So he didn't have the, the governor coming to his aid. He didn't mm-hmm. have the mayor coming to his aid. She sort of was happy to have someone else be the scapegoat because mostly during my mm-hmm. time in City Hall in L.A. and Oakland, the mayor gets blamed for crime, not the D.A. Mm-hmm. The mayor jumps on the police chief, the chief jumps on the command staff, the command staff jumps on the sergeants, the sergeants jump on the officers, and everybody has to go out there and make arrests. So Boudin was kind of on his own. So it wasn't that they were supportive of it necessarily, but everybody just kind of stood back and watched it happen.
2: You can sort of see, right, if you're London Breed, I guess the right the the argument is, well, this is someone, it won't hurt me if this person goes down. But that person went down, and then now what? As you say, now, now there's no Boudin to point the finger at. That seems like... Short sighted.
4: (laughs) Oh, well, now there's no simple answer to crime. It's very complex and complicated, and we need time to to figure it out. Now the whole rationale has shifted. It's really straight up. See, you know, the thing, as someone who worked for people like Jerry Brown, Dianne Feinstein, Kamala Harris, and others, the the politicians here are so amateur, they're not even trying to hide how amateur they are. They have no, there is no grand theory at play here. This is absolute flying blind into the fog. And I don't think they even realized the degree to, you know, how we arrived at reform was trying tough on crime. Yeah. And you're not going to get much smarter than Jerry Brown. He was tough on crime. We were tough on crime in Oakland. And then we get to Sacramento. And what do we do? The largest prison reform in in the history of the country, Mm. because that's what you learn being tough on crime, Mm. is that the only way to, the only moral solution, the only effective solution is to reduce the prison population and and change how we deal with the situation.
1: And it sounds like the right lesson was learned there, but what do you think will be the legacy of this recall?
4: I think that from now on in San Francisco, the DA is going to be a lot more in the hot seat. Somehow Mm -hmm. we redefined it so that the DA... Is now responsible directly for crime. Although in a recent LA Times profile, Brook Jenkins said something to the effect of "We can't prosecute our way out of this problem," which sounded a lot like Chase the Boudin. Right now, you tell us. And again, that's my prediction. My prediction is that she will be Chase Boudin and she'll realize that this this the situation you have. Because I mean, I've been on campaigns, you promise all this stuff, then you get in the office like, holy crap, there's all these problems, obstacles, rules, things you can do, things you can't do. So it's not as easy as giving a speech. So I think the legacy of it will be that the DA will get a lot more scrutiny going forward. But I also think some interesting things have turned up in the polls that have been conducted here over the past few months, which is that people are conflating homelessness and disorder and mental illness on the streets with crime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that we are statistically much safer from violent crime than we've ever been in recent history doesn't matter as much. And I think the real problem that Democrats in California are responsible for and have to face is why do so many people live on our streets? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's not a problem you solve with jails, though that is what some people are kind of proposing. It's a problem you have to solve with housing Mm -hmm. and with care and with empathy. So... You know, when you do the research here and you, and you look at what people like Brooke Jenkins are proposing, it's really infuriating because it's all the broken stuff that doesn't work. Most voters fell for this line, and I think they're going to be sorely disappointed. And then the question is going to be, what do we really do? And, and again, there's no path forward that doesn't lead you back to the very reforms that got Chesa Boudin crucified in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And by the way, he didn't even do those reforms. That was Jerry Brown. That was Gavin Newsom. <laughs> right. Right. People right. act like Boudin did those reforms. I, w- I was a part of those reforms. I had more to do with them than Boudin <laughs> did. He was in Venezuela or somewhere. Right. And, and the voters voted for these things. We supported these things. And so what was scary to me is how you could really channel that kind of public anger mm-hmm. yeah. at somebody who had nothing to do with it. Yeah. You're a, you know, but again, he wasn't a great politician. He he was too honest. Another legacy of, of Chase the Boudin recall, don't, don't be, be too honest. honest. Kinda of lie, you know. <laughs> it's working for Jenkins. She's lying her way to victory. Today.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, great advice. If if you're listening, that's great advice for any any politicians listening at home.
4: I uh, already know. Gil,
1: yeah, Gil, <laughs> Gil.
2: thank you so much for that edifying edifying conversation.
1: Thank you. good thank you. After the break, we'll look into who was behind Boudin's recall. The backers of the recall campaign wanted him out, but they may have had a bigger political project too. Would you like to hear more from TNR? Every day, our writers and editors work to bring you the reporting and analysis you need to make sense of the world. But we can't do it without you. Please consider subscribing to The New Republic with our special offer at tnr.com slash special offer. That's tnr.com slash special offer. We've been talking about the way crime in San Francisco appeared in the media and how those stories played with voters and with other Democrats. But this is also a story about a few individuals who invested heavily in removing Boudin from his position. The Recall campaign raised $7 million, more than double the amount Boudin's supporters raised. One of Boudin's earliest and most vocal opponents was the Silicon Valley investor David O. Sachs. He called Boudin the killer DA and told the Megyn Kelly show he thought Boudin was to blame for, quote, chaos and lawlessness in San Francisco. At one point in the campaign, nearly one third of all donations against Boudin came from him. We're talking now with Jacob Silverman about David O. Sachs's involvement in The Recall and his larger political agenda. Jacob, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
1: David O. Sachs is a fascinating figure. He's connected to a lot of other powerful figures in Silicon Valley who are also increasingly politically active. Can you tell us a bit about him?
0: Sure. Right now, I suppose you'd call him a member of the PayPal Mafia, as it's pretty widely known.
1: Okay, and just remind us, what is the PayPal Mafia?
0: It's basically the core early employees of PayPal who were all men, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the most well-known of whom are Elon Musk, uh, Peter Thiel, as I argue, David Sachs, and you got companies like YouTube and many others that came out of there and the whole Musk and Thiel empires. And they've all gone on mostly to huge amounts of wealth and a lot of influence in the Valley. But his association with these folks goes back to Stanford in the early 90s, where he met Peter Thiel, uh, Keith Raboy, and some other folks who would be early PayPal employees. At Stanford, a lot of them wrote for or worked on the Stanford Review, which was the conservative publication that Teal founded. Mm -hmm. And basically, it was an era where they were doing a lot of the same cultural warring that we see today. But at the time, what they were worried about was uh, issues of multiculturalism. That was the big bogeyman, that word specifically, and diversity in general. If you look at their writings then and kind of the battles they're having then compared to now, it's really a lot of the same issues with a lot of the same kind of crude talking points.
1: Right. So... The the way I knew of Sachs from that period was that he was actually the co-author of a book with Peter Thiel called The Diversity Myth. And just for our listeners, they weren't advocating for diversity. This wasn't like a group of people who were drawing attention to like, oh, there's like rape on campus. This is something we should do something about, right? They were kind of the backlash to people who were making those arguments.
0: Very much so. They were part of this conservative counterreaction or backlash at Stanford that was in part, you know, people were sick of hearing about the 60s from their professors, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, it was er- uh, kind of early 90s, uh, Clinton era. I mean, it was just its turn, I suppose, for conservative counter revolution, And they were doing things like testing the bounds of free speech by yelling at people and uh, with bigoted slurs and stuff like that. There was a, an issue of the Stanford Review called the rape issue. and But in general, there was this just disgust with what they saw around them, which was Lots of efforts at diversity, inclusion, Mm -hmm. there would be sort of, you know, ethnic affinity halls on campus, a lot of um, cultural based or uh, campus organizations, things like that. They thought everything was being divided among racial lines and it was sort of like, oh, the anti-racists have become the real racist sort of thing that you hear now, Uh that kind of thing.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's funny because we think of these, or the way that we mostly know of these figures now is that they are investors, CEOs, Teal founded several successful companies, but most notably PayPal. David O'Sachs was the CEO of Zenefits, which kind of blew up in a crazy way a few years ago. But they're known as business figures, but really they were activists from the beginning and they continue to be politically active. There's kind of a straight line between those Campus cultural war days and what they do well, what David Sachs has, has been doing in San Francisco.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, when some of the comments, especially about rape in the diversity myth, uh, appeared, you know, they they sort of disavowed them. They said, "Oh, those are just you know impetuous thoughts of my youth." But look, we could argue about whether they still believe these things, but they were political animals from the beginning and they were very preternaturally aware of, you know, how to operate within political milieus and so Sax and Teal were co-writers from early age in college. They wrote uh, pieces for Wall Street Journal and National Review and, uh, and other political publications. Their book was sponsored by the Independent Institute, which was a libertarian mm-hmm. think tank. They were well connected from the beginning and so I'd say that the, the business has, all, has been pretty good for both of them and of course uh, PayPal was the core of that, but um, the politics have always been there and i think what you see more in recent years is that uh the ideology probably has been pretty consistent but in terms of having a um, inserting himself more into the public sphere and having a more perhaps coherent though still murky i'd say political program and being willing to donate money and be loud about it Mm -hmm. that's where sax is at now i think and where things have changed and teal you know is a little bit of a quieter figure but he's certainly been a a force for for years politically
2: On the one hand, it's the anytime you look into um, the history of reaction and the history of right in this country, it's dispiriting how. Reliably, it can be traced back to the hangups of college Republicans on elite college campuses. Like, we just can't get away from that. Um, <laughs> but
0: it's, it's crazy from Buckley to, to <laughs> yeah, Teal, you know,
2: it's just a story that repeats itself over and over again. But the, I, from what you're describing, it seems like there was this little bit of, of this, uh, these guys sort of making their money. And then now in, in this, political environment for a variety of reasons, deciding to let the mask slip. And after being sort of apolitical for a while, sort of reverting back to the reactionary politics they were forged in and being much more open about pursuing them.
0: Yeah, I think you, you certainly saw that earlier with Teal and his support of Trump and his writings basically mm-hmm. against democracy and women's suffrage. You know, someone like Sachs donated to Hillary Clinton and some mainstream Democrats, but mm-hmm. what basically has happened in the last few years is that they've given up on. I'd argue democratic governance, probably with a big D and small d. Um, Mm -hmm. And San Francisco is the, the core of that, sort of the emblem of everything that's failed in urban governments in America. And so now they don't necessarily have a positive economic or policy program, but they are willing to spend a lot of money on recalls and on reactionary figures. So that's what really brings us to today is that people like Sachs and him in particular, he's Every major recall that's happened either in the Bay Area or recall attempt or statewide, he's put money into all of those.
2: How much money are we talking uh, for
0: Sachs uh, and and this one recall for Boudin? It's mid to high five figures. I mean, there are other people like William Oberndorf, Mm -hmm. who is a a billionaire who put in more. But Mm -hmm. I would argue two things. One, you don't know, as actually Boudin himself said in an interview, you don't always know where the money is going with some of these organizations and Sachs certainly was a very influential in terms of his own, the you know, sheer dollar to dollar, but also the role he played of bringing kind of tech people into this and being really a propagandizer against, against Boudin.
1: Why do you think he focused on Boudin so much? I mean, he wrote this piece calling him the killer DA on Medium. Why Boudin? Why pick that fight?
0: I think he, he cares about San Francisco because he lives there. And I mean, one of his at least three mansions is there and he's been there a long time and I I think also he is just rather draconian law and order, seemingly, in his Mm -hmm. politics. And he doesn't like what he sees from the criminal justice reform movement. I've seen interviews where he sort of barely paid lip service to it. Like, oh, maybe people shouldn't be arrested for for smoking weed or something like that. But like, he is part of this trend, I'd say, both legally and kind of culturally to criminalize homelessness and to see homelessness Mm -hmm. as synonymous with crime, even though a lot of homeless people are crime victims. So Boudin was a ripe target. Uh, you know they had some success with the school board recall, which he put money into. The Newsom recall did not work, but he put money into that too. So he he's willing to take his swings, and I think Boudin was was a good target with sort of this alliance of billionaire developers and tech people who were who were disgusted with what they saw. And in his own telling, he thinks that Boudin was basically more sympathetic to criminals than to mm-hmm. crime victims. I mean, he's pr- he's pretty unequivocal about that.
2: There's something really uh I find interesting about this political moment because I, I I you know I have this feeling that they are meddling in San Francisco because they think of it as their fiefdom to an extent right and that they yeah. should be able to control what's going on there but these are the sorts of people people with these backgrounds uh who for much of my adult life we would have described as being libertarian right they would have been like promoting a sort of uh anti-government, John Galtie kind of Randian libertarianism was was the flavor of Silicon Valley giving for so many years, but it seems like the new style is is pretty straight up law and order authoritarianism. I would say that seems like a shift, but I don't know how much of a shift it actually turned out to be.
0: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things going on there. Like, I mean, one is just sort of day to day stuff. What they see like look, there are a lot of homeless people around the Twitter offices and open-air drug Mm -hmm. use. But I think some of these people have also realized it doesn't take necessarily a lot of money to buy an election. Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. Um, Like, Sachs himself, I mean, he gave a million dollars to J.D. Vance to his PAC, but he can afford it. And and the stuff in San Francisco is not, you know, he's probably donated in the hundreds of thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. collectively, I would think. So you can get something for your money there and yeah i think in the end they also are just not interested in non-carceral solutions to this stuff
2: you get rich enough you just your attitude just becomes like i can pay to make this thing that i don't like go away
0: yeah yeah
1: a lot of his contributions have been focused in california do you think that the recall of Boudin and the success that that campaign had heralds more activity like this on a national level like what do you think is next for Sachs and the group of kind of like-minded activists around him?
0: I do. I think a couple of things are going to happen. Well, one, I ended my article with a quote from him saying this model needs to be replicated across the country. That's
1: a direct quote.
0: Yeah, this. I think it somewhat uh, depends on their commitment. Teal has recently said that, you know, we're a little too negative. We don't really have a positive program. Well, big surprise. They need that. <laughs> They need some positive program, but they all seem to like DeSantis as the sort of more respectable alternative, perhaps, to Trumpism. And during the elections, or as votes were being counted, Sachs basically posted some stuff about DeSantis, proud of his re-election. It's time for DeSantis in 2024. So I think that's what you're going to see is both an attempt to roll back Mm -hmm. criminal justice reform, recall who they can just by using their money, and then pushing kind of their crew, which is... I mean, some of them lost, like Oz, who they've raised money for, mm-hmm. and Blake Masters.
1: Another Teal co-author.
0: Yeah, another Teal employee. So like, they're going to push their guys who made it in. And then I think DeSantis is going to be their stocking horse who they'll, they'll try to assemble behind for 2024.
1: Thanks so much, Jacob.
0: Oh, sure thing. Glad to do it. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse.
1: Emily Cook is our executive producer.
2: Myron Kaplan is our audio editor.
1: If you enjoy the politics of everything and you want to support us, one thing you can do is go to wherever you listen to the podcast and rate the show. Every rating and review helps.
2: Thanks for listening.